Well, good morning, church. Great to see you here. Oh, boy. You can see we need a second sight, can't you? So, uh, it's very evident, the number of people here. Um, let's dive in. We're going to go to Matthew 26, and we're going to be reading from 36 to 46. So, 26, 36, 46, Matthew. Uh, let's dive in. It's really helpful for you, and it's very helpful for me. We're in a series that is leading up to Easter, and this is where we are today. Matthew 26, 36, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep with me, keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And he came back and he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them. And he went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Ah. You know, I, I don't know if anybody's watched those episodes of 24 with Jack Bauer. Just raise your hands if that did. You're, just don't be shy. Have you watched the 24 series with Jack Bauer? Okay. What you find is, is that it's been the most popular political thrillers over the last 15 years and won a number of awards. Now, for each season, comprises, each season comprises of 24 episodes, and each one covers one hour of 24 at a specific moment in the life of Jack Bauer, who is a counter-terrorist agent. Do you know, as we lead up to Easter, we're covering probably the most well-known 24 hours in Jesus' life, leading up to the cross. This is a 24 hours. If you want pace, if you want drama, 
If you want, you know, you want agony and all that, it's all in the mix here in these 24 hours. The Last Supper, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, his arrest, the trial before Pilate, his beating, crucifixion. I mean, this is some 24 hours. Oh, you want pace? I tell you, this moves. This is utter pace. And Jesus, Jesus' disciples, do you know, they're going to replay these 24 hours again and again in their minds. And already, something is different. Something about tonight is different. There's something going on. Something's not quite right. It's a miss. And they can't quite put their finger on it. Judas left the upper room, as Francis told us last week, and, and they're having their last meal, and he's gone. He's done his deal with the Jewish authorities, and Judas knows it. And then he realizes Jesus knows it. But the disciples, and it was awkward. But the disciples are still in the dark. And then prior to this moment in the garden, they have this odd conversation on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus basically tells them, you know, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to leave me. And Peter is just adamant, I am not going to do that. Well, I'm not going to do that. And he receives a specific insight about his denial from Jesus. You know, this very night... Before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And later on, they're going to think all this through. And he wasn't the only one who said, oh, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. All the disciples did that. And later on, they're going to think about this. And they're going to realize this, that Jesus knew what they would do, and still, he wanted them with him. (laughs) I just think that's wonderful. You know, they're going to look back and think, oh my goodness, he knew this. And still he wanted us here at this moment in his life. They all go to the garden, but three of them, Jesus is closest. They just go a little bit further. He needs them with them. You need to be in your Bibles today. Verse 37, it says, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said, said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Three things I just want to explore this morning. What is this overwhelmed with sorrow? What is it? And the second one is, why such agony? I think that's the term that Luke uses. Just an agony. Why? Why such agony? And, and just thirdly, what does Jesus do at such a moment like this, what does he do? What are the things that he does? Mark's gospel says he was deeply distressed. Jesus, my friends, is being crushed with sorrow. It's squeezing the very life out of him. When Mark says he's deeply distressed, it means he's astonished. It means he is shocked. What is happening here is a shock. To Jesus. He's never experienced sorrow like this. This isn't melodrama. Jesus isn't prone to 
emotional exaggeration. Luke records that, that his sweat was like drops of blood. And yet we know, we know he is facing death. And Jesus knows he is facing death. Now here's my question. How does what Jesus faced compare with others who went after him and faced the ordeal of death and execution? How does, what, what is the difference? What, how does he compare? You know, through church history, there are many accounts of those being executed who followed Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus Christ. Many accounts executed, cut to pieces, thrown to wild animals. And as they went, for many of them it seemed they displayed confidence, inner peace, even a dignity for summer joy. You know, Polycarp was, uh, was a, a disciple of the Apostle John. And he was the Bishop of Smyrna. He's 86 years old. And the magistrates come after him. And they get a hold of him. And he's told to recant. To deny his Christian faith. And he refuses. He's like, I won't do that. And he has this sort of, almost a banter with the magistrate. Because the magistrate is desperate that he is not to be executed. But he won't. He won't recant. He says, how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And he's sentenced to be burnt at the stake. And as the fire is lit, Polycarp prays. And he prays, I bless you, Father. This is in public. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour. So that in the company of martyrs, I may share in the cup of Christ. And then, you know, closer to home, there's, there's for us, it's just down the road, Nicholas Ridley and uh, Hugh Latimer in, in Oxford on Broad Street, burnt at the stake, burnt at the stake for the Bible, for following Jesus Christ and the Word of God. They burnt at the stake. And perhaps these are the most famous words of any Christian martyr, because Latimer turns to Ridley, and as the flames are leaping up, he says, Be of good cheer. Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Never has been put out, has it? So what's happening here is the question. That Jesus is experiencing such deep anguish and he's crushed by this sorrow. Why do so many of Jesus' followers seemed to face the ordeal of death better than him. It's a good question to ask, isn't it? What is this overwhelming sorrow? I'll tell you, no one faced a death like he did. No one. No one has faced what he has. Here Jesus is as you have never seen him before. Overwhelmed with sorrow, listen, to the point of death. And do you know what it's about? It's this cup. Three times. The cup. The cup. Goes away a third time. The same prayer about the cup. Father, if it's possible, 
May this cup be taken from me. Now, if you look at verse 42, Jesus had come back to pray again for the second time. And again, this phrase, the cup is spoken. What's the cup? Well, if you understood ancient languages and cultures, a cup very often signifies ordeal and suffering. To drink the cup is the ordeal of suffering. Socrates is a Greek philosopher, and um, he was sentenced to death by drinking the cup of poison. And that's what he did. He drank the cup of poison and died. This cup came to represent disaster or suffering. In the Old Testament, you'll find there are references to the cup, and it symbolizes disaster, God's disaster on individuals or nations, for that matter, who did evil things. This is talking about God's punishment. The terror, the terror of this cup leaves Jesus flattened on the floor. It's a bitter cup. Ezekiel speaks of this cup as large and deep, filled with sorrow. This is the cup, Ezekiel says, of desolation and ruin. This will, when you drink it, make you tear your breast or chest. Isaiah says this cup, he speaks of it as the cup of wrath that will make you stagger to drink it. That is what Jesus is experiencing now. This is the overwhelming sorrow to the point of death. He is experiencing this. He is just a foretaste of what is coming. And he is sweating, sweating drops of blood, overwhelmed with sorrow. No one has ever gone this way. No one. No one has experienced this. No one has drunk from this cup. This is the divine wrath of God. On all man's evil and injustice and wrongdoing. And it fills Jesus with horror. So, this is the cup. That's why he's overwhelmed with sorrow. Why the agony? Why the agony? Well, the main expression of God's punishment is to be excluded from his presence. That's the final straw. To be excluded from his presence. To be cut off. His presence, my friends, is exactly what we were made for. We were made for that. We were created, just as Di said this morning, as she gave that prophetic word about restoration. We were were created in the garden to have fellowship with him in his presence. His presence made all the difference. You know, we, we were created to live in relationship with him. You know, like a flower needs the sun or a fish needs water. We were made this way. Sin, however, sin convinces us that we would be happier to be free from God. Free to live as I want, as Sinatra said. Do it my way. Better off without him. Happier away from God. Free without him. Therefore, listen, it stands that the ultimate punishment... That which is surely infinitely fair, surely infinitely fair, 
is if you want to be away from God, that is the final straw. And you can be. That is the infinite punishment. You can go it alone. If that is what you really want, God will say, I will give you what you desire. And in that separation, do you know, we fall apart. And in another garden where Adam and Eve were, that was the beginning of it all. That was the beginning of it all. And you follow that, and you follow a trail of disaster and debris, just page after page through Genesis. So Jesus is beginning to experience the essence of God's exclusion. That's so that you can experience God's inclusion. Jesus is beginning to experience this. I mean, he, he's in the garden to pray, you know, more than anyone else. Jesus has this unbroken fellowship with his Father. Listen, from eternity, we don't get a glimpse. We just have a, we just have a few years of a lifetime. But his is from eternity. It's always been this way. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, communion with one another, the joy of it, the glory of it, the love of that relationship. And so he prays, and he loves to pray. It's intimate, and it's at this moment of intimacy. He just begins to feel this. It just gets a glimpse, a foretaste of what is yet to come. And the shock of it, of separation from God, the shock of hell opening up in front of him, right in this garden, at the moment of prayer. It's just, this is what, it's an agony. You might say here, you know, I don't believe in a God of wrath. I, I believe in a God of love. And uh, the truth is, the truth is, if you want a loving God, you have to have an angry one. Think a moment. Just think a moment, please. When we think of God's anger, we usually tie it in with his justice. And those who care about justice get angry when they see justice trampled on. Des and I, many years ago, watched the film Cry Freedom. I don't know if any of you saw that. The disgrace and the inhumanity of the apartheid regime in South Africa. And we sat and watched this film. And this has never happened. This has never happened to me in a film. And at the end of it, there's this list of credits at the end of the film. And nobody moves. Nobody's, nobody's up to go and get a drink and go to the toilet or whatever. Everybody is shocked as they saw this gross inhumanity that had just left us with it. Not one person moved. And the, and the studio was pretty full. Not one person moved. You got along the same lines. I don't know if it's a year or two ago, but 12 years a slave. I don't know if you saw that, but just the appalling treatment of black people. The, just the sheer injustice of it. Surely if that does not get you angry, tell me, what does? I mean, you just sit there indifferent to this? Of course we don't. We feel an anger. The injustice of it all. God hates this. It's inhumanity to man and all that he's made. And, and what's more... You know, 
There are things that are not deemed worthy of blockbuster movies and still cause people great pain and humiliation. It goes on in everyday life. You know, it can start small and then it just, you know, like pregnancy, it starts small, but sooner along the line, you're going to see what it is. You know, and uh, sin sometimes, I'm not equating, you know, pregnancy with sin here. Sin sometimes, you know, it starts small and you don't really notice it. But you know, the backbiting and the backstabbing and selfishness and hypocrisy and deceit, all these little things are everyday life and they are not small change. If God is loving and good, he must be angry at evil. Well, somebody says, well, I believe in God, but, you know, I don't believe in Jesus and the cross. I don't believe in that. Then I would ask the question, well, what does it cost your God to love you? If you don't believe in Jesus and the cross, what does it cost you? Or you believe in God, what does it cost? How, how valuable are you to your God? What is the cost? Nothing. Well, the God of the Bible doesn't just say, I love you. He loves us so much that he will do something about it. And furthermore, he goes through the agony of the exclusion of God in order that we might know the inclusion of the love of God. Jonathan Edwards, I mean, a, a number of centuries ago, massive uh, Massive anointing on this man. He saw great revival. And he preached on the uh, Christ's agony. He writes this. He says, If just the taste and glimpse of these sufferings were enough to throw the eternal Son of God into shock and to nearly kill him in the anticipation of them, what was the actual full experience of those on the cross really like. He did this for you. My Jesus did this for you, my friends. He knew what was coming. And he didn't want you to know the exclusion. And he didn't want you to look into the mouth of hell. He did this for you. That you might know him what? For a while? No. For eternity. We're given eternal life. Isn't that wonderful? Furthermore, he goes on and uh, he makes the point that Jesus was given an extraordinary view of what he was to suffer. He says, God first brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames, and might see where he was going, and might voluntarily enter into it, and bear it for sinners, as knowing what it was, this view Christ had in his agony. Do you know there are some experiences that you're on and you can't stop? You just can't get back. That's, you, can't, you can't reverse it. You know, if you're going to have a baby and you're there and uh, you may not have got a glimpse of what this was really going to be like, but you're, having, you're going to have a baby and my, my friends, you can't reverse it. It's going to happen. You know, that's, that's what happens. 
But Jesus is given a glimpse of what is going to happen. He took the cup knowing what was going to happen. He wasn't blindfolded. He looked into it. God is giving Jesus a chance, a choice. It's dark. The disciples are asleep, you know. It looks so awful, so terrible. The terror of this cup. He could walk away now. Jesus walks into to drink this cup with his eyes wide open for you and for me and for the love of his father. Wow. Wow. We got, you can't say that he was on sort of some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of momentum here and, and, and suddenly realized he couldn't stop it. No, he saw what was going to happen. The terror of it. He chooses to drink this cup. He chooses to love you and me. <laughs> he will lose his life so that he will gain yours. Hallelujah. He resolved he would, he would bear the consequences of the wrath of God, not you. He would, he would rather be the one to perish than you. Jesus, my friends, went to the cross with his eyes wide open. He volunteered. He chose. He just didn't get caught up in some sort of maelstrom of events. He chose this. And that's why you have on the cross that line, isn't it? Oh my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Oh, just desperate prayer. It's no wonder, you know, the hymns are full of the love of God. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? On that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me, now my soul cries, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. This is the love of God. Now, Tim Keller, who is a pastor at Redeemer Church in New York, he writes great books, and um, he says this. He talks about this love of Jesus. He says, that love, whose obedience is wide and long and high and deep enough to dissolve a mountain of rightful wrath, is the love you've been looking for all your life. No family love, no friend love, no mother love, no spousal love, no romantic love. Nothing could possibly satisfy you like that. All those other kinds of love will let you down. This one never will. You might be at that place today. You might well be at that place today. This one, my friends, it will never let you down. All the rest will fall short. They just cannot do it. But this love, this love of Jesus, who goes for a cro- to the cross and takes the punishment of God for you, it will never let you down. That is the truth. And lastly, you know, what does Jesus do at such a moment like this? I'm just going to run through three practicalities at a moment like this. He, he has complete integrity. You know, wherever he is, he is who he is. He's never putting on a front. He's never, you know, it's no, there's no two personalities here. You see what you see. 
There's immense honesty. He comes in prayer, puts his needs on the table. His feelings are open. All his vulnerability laid bare in the garden. Nothing hidden. He's the same in the dark as he is in the light. Jesus is emotionally and spiritually real. He just brings himself as he is. And that's all he asks of you. Just come as you are. Don't come as with a prayer that you think God will like. Just come as you are. Bring what you have and put it on the table. Put it in front of him. And come again. It's not one prayer and off. You know, just, and come again. And if it's that same thing, and come again. But come as you are in unopenness and vulnerability. Please do that. That's all he asks of you. And secondly, look what he does. He, he needs others. This is Jesus' small group, his disciples. And there's three of them that are particularly close to him. Peter, James, and John. I know they're not much help. But he has a small group. You can't deny it. Jesus is not advocating lone ranger Christianity. There's no go alone policy here. Jesus is in the company of others who are helpful to him. Exclamation mark as they fall asleep. Pick that up in just a second. All right. But he has his small group. He has his community of God's people around him. Question. Do you? Do you? Do you? Listen, if it's good enough for Jesus, why wouldn't it be good enough for you and me? You know, in April we got our new season of sign-ups for small groups. Don't go it alone. It's not God's will for you. Get with his people. Get into a small group. Be part of a small group. It's immensely helpful. Absolutely helpful. Just do it. It's an essential part of the life. Jesus was in community forever. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus knows community like no other. Comes to this earth. I'll have you, Peter, James, John, you know, Andrew. I'll have you, you know. He has a small group. Get into a small group. It's just part of what we do. It's the next step. If you know the Lord, then get amongst his people. It's his will and his longing and his desire for your life. Don't, don't pull back. Get in. And thirdly, talking about small groups, you see. In the same breath, Jesus' small group has hardly excelled. You know, he's in the worst moment of his life and they're asleep. It's not a great small group at this stage, is it? You know. Um, they've not been a great help. And once more he's come back and said, you know, couldn't you just, just an hour? Just, uh, guys, just an hour? He's gone back. <laughs> nah, they're asleep, having a kip. They're, you know. So who's let you down? That's the next question. Who's let you down? There'll always be people who let us down, you see. Jesus wants them there. They're not there. Who did you want there? And they weren't there. You know, it's a good question, this. It's a good question. 
Jesus' disciples, you know, they still leave him to it at the worst time of his life. You know, when we have matters like this, my friends, please, let me, let me just say this to you. About the matters of other people letting you down. You're probably clueless to the number of people that you've let down. And people have disappointed you, and you don't know who you've disappointed. Let's be careful about this. It's very important that we do this. We get hurt, and we hurt others. Do you know the most common cause of hurt and pain is wrong expectations? It's what it is. Wrong expectations. I was with uh, somebody not long ago, and uh, it had all gone pear-shaped. It had all gone pear-shaped between two people just gone pear-shaped. And the reason was, this person had those expectations, and this person had those expectations, and they didn't meet. They, they had different expectations of what the other was supposed to do. Some of this can be sorted out with a conversation. Lots of these things, are like, many, many conflicts like this are through misunderstanding. And a conversation sometimes really works it out. And a conversation, when all the heats die down, a conversation actually allows people to accept responsibility as well. You've got to watch this. You know, and, and where hurt has happened, then responsibility needs to take place. And we have a responsibility to forgive as well. You know, if you want to grow, then don't do this forgiveness stuff. But if you want to grow, forgive. If you don't, you will shrink. It's as sure as it is. That's exactly what it is. All your disappointments. I love what Jesus does here, you know. He says, there's no, there's no underhand comment. There's nothing indicating he's stewing on this. All he says, are you still sleeping and resting? I like the word resting. There's no verbal onslaught. It's full of grace. He doesn't pretend it hasn't happened either. So that it will come up at another day. He says, sleeping, resting. Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, if you have anything against one another, against another person... I'm asking you, start the process today and give it to the Lord. I mean, there are things that we do about this. But give it to the Lord. Bring your hurts, bring your disappointments, bring all those misunderstood expectations, bring them to the Lord. And you know that will start a process. And every time you see that person, bring it to the Lord. And bring it to the Lord. And sometimes conversations have to happen. That is true. But you keep bringing that stuff to the Lord. Keep bringing it to the Lord. All other loves will let you down, but his never will. Amen?